Welcome to That'll Preach, a weekly show where we talk about all the fascinating things about church history and philosophy and theology. I'm Brian with my co-host, Paul, and uh, we are doing another podcast long distance, as our podcast will now be, because Paul has moved away from Tallahassee to the far northern land of Michigan, where he is at Hillsdale College and uh, teaching and influencing the young minds of the future in the ways of philosophy. Are you going to say that every time we start a podcast now? I'm going to add more things. It's going to be like, Paul also teaches medieval art and Russian dance. Paul's opening a mime school. Paul Paul (laughs) is a professor of women's studies. You just spend all day studying women. That sounds like a stalker. Creepy. That's not what I do. What do you do, Paul? I corrupt the youth as they charge Socrates of doing. Tell, tell me this. What is the most enjoyable thing you do up there in Hillsdale? The, the sprawling metropolis <laughs> of Hillsdale. Mainly, I just sit around reminiscing about the good old days. You're wishing that I had your face in front of me. I was going to say your you face go. in my hands, but I don't want so that. We're, we're on Zoom right now, and I'm looking at Paul... And he is zooming from literally a, a white room with totally white walls. It looks like the most barren. It looks like you're in solitary confinement, Paul. Do you One, need help? That's racist. We need to spring actually, you out. It's Caucasian. Um, and two, oh, right. this is my office. It's, it is really bare. I do need, I need like an interior designer to come and help me put stuff up. I need pictures of Brian. I need pictures of, I don't know. There's no windows. It's kind of sad. I would just make a mural of my face. <laughs> and people, when they, when you zoom in from your office, people be like, Paul, take off that weird digital background. And you're like, no, that, that's, not, that, that's, that's my wall. That's painted on there. People are going to think like you're some kind of like famous philosophical martyr or something. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. You should just make it up and be like, I did my dissertation on him. And uh, fascinating <laughs> thinker. He has a podcast. I do a podcast with him. It's Confucius. There you, <laughs> there you go. There you go. That was very un-PC, Paul. We're I, gonna know, cancel, I know. We're going to re-cancel you. You don't, you don't have tenure yet. You can't... Uh, oh, yeah, it's true. I know. Can't say whatever you want anymore. I'm not saying... This is very filtered. That's true. That's yeah. true. Well, speaking of filters, um, we are going to be filtering some of the thoughts of Tertullian, one of the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> uh, doesn't he sound like a ninja turtle? He does, yeah. Like Tertullian. Donatello. Tertullian. Donatello. Tertullian. <laughs> but uh, no, Tertullian is uh, one of the church fathers that we're doing a series on, old dead guys, looking at some of the disciples of the disciples, people who were within a couple generations of the apostles. And uh, we're, we're nearing sort of the outer limits of some of these early fathers. Um, but one of the reasons that we want to do this is because it's educational for us. We're enjoying going through some of the material from the history of the church, the rich traditions that we can draw upon, even though we're Protestants, uh, we have nothing to fear from church tradition or history. These are, these are the insights of saints before us who have, uh, who have hard fought wisdom for us to, uh, or to think about. And, and to and to retrieve, um, but Tertullian uh, is one of the most notable 
uh, early church figures. Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about him? So Tertullian is not actually a church father. I discovered this very recently. He is, he's considered like a great early church thinker, but he's not because of some of his weird views, which I guess we're going to get into. Oh, true. Sort of, uh, you know, he was not quite like, so he, he's considered a, a good thinker and he proposed some interesting ideas. For example, he was the first person to use the term Trinity in Latin and he gave us some interesting concepts, but he also had some weird views about the soul and about baptism, maybe. Um, and so he's considered not quite a church father, not at that level. Like he's not an official church thinker, but he's considered like an important thinker. All right. So Tertullian has a few strange perhaps even unorthodox views, but what was he known for? What are some reasons why we know about him? So he is actually the first great uh, writer in the church who uses Latin. So up until now, all the guys that we've been looking at, Polycarp, Ignatius, Irenaeus, these guys are writing in Greek. And so now we see the church beginning to not split, but there's a little bit of a divergence between what happens in the Eastern half of the Roman empire the Greek speaking, and then the Western half, which becomes Latin speaking. And so the Latin fathers be, end up, uh, we get Jerome and Augustine and that tradition. And then on the Greek side, we get Kappa Cappadocia, Cappadocian fathers. Kappa Cappadocia. <laughs> and uh, that sort of, so we, we, we begin to see a kind of like materializing of two different flavors of Christianity. It's still the same church, but one is primarily Greek speaking, one is pr- primarily Latin speaking. And they do tend to emphasize different, like the Eastern side becomes a little bit more mysterious and esoteric and salvation is about deification. And the Western church starts dealing with things like Pelagianism and the human will and freedom and a lot more concrete issues about soteriology. And so there's different debates arising in different parts of the Roman empire, but Tertullian is the first great Latin speaking church thinker. And he wrote on baptism. He wrote on sacraments. He wrote on the soul. He was also responding to Marcion. <laughs> Everybody was responding to Marcion in those days. Um, so yeah, he's just, he's, he's prolific. He wrote tons of stuff. He himself was a convert to Christianity and lived in Northern Africa where Augustine also ends up living. So we know Tertullian lived in, in Carthage. Um, it's unclear how he became a Christian. Some sources say that his father was a centurion. We know he was married uh, he wrote two treatises to his wife or two sort of like theological. What a, what a, what a romance, what a right? romantic guy writing yeah. treatises to your wife. That's, you know, you got to step your game up. You got to make you take that. As, uh, that's some good advice for you, Brian. There you go. Um, yeah. I mean, Tertullian, he's, he's important for all sorts of historical reasons, but that's sort of just a highlight reel. He also started messing with this group called the Montanists. Mm, later yeah. on, right? Yeah. Where there was like, it was like this guy Montanus and his two prophetesses, these women who were having visions. And it was a sort of a weird cultish <laughs> movement, uh, having visions and all this stuff. And he had some sympathies towards him. So I think that that's kind of colored his legacy mm. a little bit in a negative light. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot of people are mixed bags. And so, Tertullian does have a lot of good stuff and, and he's got a lot of some strange stuff too. And, and some of that strange stuff pops up in the document we're going to look at today, which is on baptism. It's his little treatise on baptism. And he writes this because 
there apparently are some people, I think he calls them Cainites, mm. who are denying the necessity of baptism, basically saying, why do you need to be baptized? And, uh, and that's sort of a, a sentiment that we see today, even. Yeah. You know, why not just believe? Why go through this ritual? Isn't this just externalism and all that stuff? And Tertullian comes pretty strong in, in force when he says, no, you, you need to be bap- baptized. And it, it seems to hold to a doctrine of what people say is, is baptismal regeneration, meaning yeah. baptism actually saves you in, in, mm-hmm. in, in a sense. It, 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 that going through baptism uh, converts your heart, tra- transforms your heart. And at the time, people were holding off you know, baptisms because they didn't want their one chance at being having their sins forgiven, wasted. Yeah, they want to wait to the end of their life, sin all they can, and then just kind of get the final pass. And, um, and Tertullian is fighting against that as well. Mm-hmm. But um, he, he begins when he says that happy is our sacrament of water, in that by washing away the sins of our early blindness, we were set free and admitted into eternal life. Uh, and then he says that... Um, those who simply believe uh, have an untried, though probable faith. So I, it, it seems like he is a category that you don't have to be baptized to be saved necessarily, but uh, we have our doubts. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it's. I think I think what he's trying to do is, um, and he uses this theme throughout, which he he says that God uses simple things to save, and so. You might think like, oh, I mean, the the Canaanite objection was, why should we like, why why would this water ritual be so important? Like, why right. why would that be uh, an important part of the Christian life? It doesn't and, seem spiritual. It seems right. beneath them. Too exactly. simple. Exactly. Right. And Tertullian's response is, well, all throughout history, God uses really simple things to save or cleanse His people, and he quotes that passage. The foolish things of the world, God chose to confound the wisdom of the wise, and right. things of God are sort of difficult and counterintuitive, and that that theme is kind of like running as a counterobjection to these Canaanites who are saying, "Yeah, why why would this little menial ritual have any important part to play in the Christian life?" He's like, "Well, God often chooses. God chose Israel. God chose Jesus. God chooses these really simple, menial-looking things to accomplish His purposes in the world." And and it's really that. Um, he, he really has sort of a wonder in the fact that that God choose to do it uh, this way. Um, he he kind of says, um, you know, with so great simplicity, without pomp, without any considerable novelty of preparation, and finally, without expense, it's free, right? A man is dipped in water, and amid the utterance of some few words is sprinkled and then rises again. Not much or not at all the cleaner. The consequent attainment of eternity is esteemed the more incredible. So he's like, man, mm. it's free. <laughs> it doesn't seem like this amazing religious ritual. You go into the water and you don't even come out that much cleaner. It's not even practically right. that helpful. And yet it's, it's drawing one into eternal life. Mm. Um, now, yeah. again, it, you have to be, it, it's one of those things with the church fathers that you see this sort of with, uh, their doctrine of justification, even they're not thinking in terms of the reformers. They're sometimes they can seem like they're advocating a kind of works righteousness. Or uh, again, with baptism, he—I mean, I would say that Tertullian believes in 
in in the salvific power of baptism. Yeah. And uh, again, we we have to read these with a grain of salt, but sure. we also want to recognize that Tertullian is touching on something important. That the sacraments, which are visible signs of God's invisible grace, right, are crucial. That they're not. It's not. Uh, we, we can say, okay, we don't believe baptism saves you, but we also don't believe that baptism is the equivalent of like you just thinking nice thoughts about Jesus. Right. Yeah. Right. There's something yeah. unique about it, and the Reformed tradition talks about how baptism is a. I think John Frame uses this phrase where he says baptisms are. Or the sacraments are special locations of God's grace, or hmm. or places where God promises to be. Right. Um, you don't have to wander around the world to know where God's presence will be. You know that He'll be there in the Lord's Supper hmm. uh, or at baptism. And there's um, a, there's a command even in Scripture to get baptized. So right. if, if for nothing else, then you've got a scriptural impetus to do it as part of the Christian life, as as part of an initiation into the kingdom of God. Another thing that we see is Tertullian, along with a lot of other early thinkers, is very symbolic in a lot of his speech. Oh, yeah. Very typological, very, I, would say, I guess, allegorical. Would you call mm -hmm. it allegory? Sure, I yeah. Mean, he he, he reads about, all of the Old Testament stuff in light of the New Testament pictures. Right. You know? He talks about how, you know, okay, well, why do we use water? Well, he says, well, water is one of those things which, before all the furnishing of the world were quiescent, quiescent with God in a yet unshaped state. <laughs> yeah, basically saying like, look, water was there in the beginning. So right. there's something special about the fact that baptism is water. I mean, the, you know, Genesis one, the waters were unformed and right. it's fitting was, was over the, the, the water. Right. Yeah. And he's like, well, if the spirit was over the water, I mean, that's what's happening in baptism. The spirits over the baptismal waters. Hmm. Um, so he's, he's very sort of keen into that. Uh, yeah. The waters were the first to bring forth living creatures mm. in Genesis. Um, then you've got so, Moses in the Red Sea. Moses in the Red Sea. Yeah, the water from right. the rock that Moses strikes. And he compares that to the spear that goes into Jesus' side. And then the water comes out of that. And he's drawn all these metaphors and pictures of water from both the Old and the New Testament saying, look at how God provides for his people through water. So it's fitting when we see the entrance into the kingdom of God being a, a ritual rite of going into water, coming out, sort of like the, the cleansing of Naaman. And it, again, the, the going into the dirty Jordan River seems menial, seems gross. You might even come out worse for wear looking coming out of it. But there, there's something deeply significant happening there beneath all of the exterior stuff. And Tertullian's like, hey, this shouldn't surprise us. We see this all the time in the Old Testament that God works in this way. Um, and sure. I thought that was kind of cool. And then he uh, <laughs> he includes this quote that I thought was hilarious, where after he talks about all the water stuff, he's like, I fear I may have seemed to collected the praises of water rather than the praises of baptism. <laughs> he just like <laughs> goes on this tirade talking about all the Old Testament water pictures. So he's uh, he's kind of funny. Well, I mean, he, he, he notices some objections. He says, well, people might say, well, then, you know, if it's such a big deal about these waters that God, you know, that the spirit was hovering over, then why aren't we baptized with those waters from the yeah. very beginning? Mm -hmm. And he says, well, you know, all water is, even though it's not the same water as the beginning of creation, however you understand that, 
uh, it's still the same species of waters or something like that. It's, it's all, all water has this kind yeah. of thing with it. And so maybe he's getting a little self-conscious being like, man, I've spent a lot of ink or whatever papyrus yeah. on, on talking about water. <laughs> now, chapter six, he says, not that in the waters we obtain the Holy Spirit, but in the water under the witness of the angel, we were cleansed and prepared for the Holy Spirit. Mm. I have no idea what he's saying. <laughs> I mean, I was waiting for you to say something very profound and unwrap that for us. But I, I guess what he's saying is that the water doesn't give us the Holy Spirit, but rather when you're baptized and a wit, an angel witnesses it well, and, that, and, and you're, you're, you're cleansed of your sins so that you can receive the Holy Spirit. So I'd imagine it's like, you know, it's a cleaning a vessel so that you can fill it with water or, or something like that. Yeah. I, I guess, but the angel thing is, is yeah, very strange. I've, he I've talks no about idea. the angel of baptism. Like he, he references the, when Jesus heals the guy who was crippled by the pool, who talks about the angel who goes in the water and then comes back out. Yeah. Tertullian's like, that was a pre, like a proto baptism kind of thing. And so now when we baptize, there's always an angel who's a witness or like stirs the waters kind of, and makes it clean. And I'm like, uh, that doesn't sound seems kosher. a little far fetched. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Another thing that's interesting is the practice of uh, the blessed unction, the anointing with oil. I believe oh, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. Uh, he he says that uh, after this, when we've issued from the font, so after the baptism, uh, the baptismal font, we are thoroughly anointed with a blessed unction. A practice derived from the old discipline, wherein on entering the priesthood, men were wont to be anointed with oil from a horn, ever since Aaron was anointed by Moses. So he's basically saying in the Old Testament, Aaron anointed Moses, uh, or, or sorry, Moses anointed Aaron as a priest by giving mm -hmm. oil from a horn. Right. And when you're baptized, you're sort of baptized into this priesthood, uh, and you are baptized, and they put oil on you. Um, so... This seems uh, to be something that I I've never seen. Well, actually, I've seen it one time in an Anglican baptism where there was a there was a, a renouncing Satan and yeah, 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 a, a putting the oil. Mm -hmm. But it seems to be an ancient practice. Yeah, he um, also talks about um, the fasting before baptism. Yes. Oh boy, both, both the person who's getting ripped. baptized and the person who's doing the baptism. Like both people need to fast for. He gives some amount. I think it was like a day or two days or something. That's why they didn't want a lot of church growth. They wanted to eat. Can you <laughs> imagine true. that? Like, I haven't eaten in a month. We had a revival. Yeah. I I don't know if any traditions practice that. Do you know if the Orthodox maybe still? I, I do not know. I don't know. But it was, I guess, it just pointed to the, the gravitas and the importance with which Tertullian and that community saw baptism, that uh, you would take a period of time to really think about what it was that you were doing. I guess that's that's part of it, that you would that it was a, there was a period of time before even devoted just to preparing yourself to the baptism. And it was, it was a really weighty thing because you were being initiated into the kingdom of God. So now was, was there anything that triggered you as somebody like, so you mentioned a weighty thing and considering what baptism means, did anything trigger you as the, because you, you are, you uh, practice infant baptism, <laughs> you're an infant baptizer. What, what, anything I've never baptized any infants, but that's true. Yes. Um, but you have been baptized by infants. That's the weird thing. 
It's a, what a hilarious image. I know. Have you seen those? That'd be a great col- Halloween costume. What, a, a massive baby with like a baptismal font? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> infant Baptist, infant baptizer. That's so funny. Um, during COVID, there were like the the super soaker baptisms. Like there are pictures online of priests Wait, what? wearing oh masks, gosh. like super soaking babies from like six feet. It's oh kind of funny. Oh my gosh, that's but, ridiculous. Um, Tertullian expressed a caution, a word of, of caution about baptizing kids. And um, the reason that he invoked was, yeah, don't, why would, why would you risk rushing into baptizing someone when they're so young? Why would you not let them wait to grow into it? And um, yeah, so, so there seems at least on the face of it to be a kind of like anti-infant baptism uh, message that he's teaching here. But upon closer inspection, I don't think that's right. But I don't know if you want to say anything else before that. No, I I, I want you to, I want to hear. Okay. Hear what you have to say, Paul. All right. So um, like you mentioned, there were people in the early church who had this view of baptism that it cleansed all your sins. And there was a group of Christians called the Novatians who believe that if you sinned after you were baptized, you couldn't, you could never regain your salvation. And they got this from the Hebrew six, those who have tasted and seen and experienced if they fall away, cannot be brought back. So that the novations believe that, but not the majority of the church. Right. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so okay. although th- it was, it was sort of creeping into, and at least a tendency that people were, you know, so Tertullian talks about some older people who just, chose not to get baptized until their deathbed. So you had deathbed right, right, baptisms right. for that reason, that right. if, you, if you genuinely believed you can't regain your salvation, if you sin after baptism, then you're like, of course I won't get baptized until <laughs> the lights went out again in my office. Um, yeah, you're not going to get baptized until the last second, just to maximize your chances of salvation. And so uh, Tertullian might be responding to that sort of thing. And the Christian church is trying to work through that understanding. Um, and so there might be a little bit of novationism in Tertullian's thinking. A little bit of innovation. <laughs> Did Thank you? you. That was pretty good. Um, but yeah, so so that's that's one reading of what's going on here, that Tertullian might have had this view that if you sinned after, after baptism, after you were proclaimed a child of God and made one of the kingdom of God, if you committed a, a serious sin, then you were not, you know, you were just disqualified. And that's from a, a very serious reading of Hebrew six, you know, which is that passage right. that we all read and we're like, ah, that's kind of terrifying. But they, they took that pretty, pretty seriously. And so you had deathbed conversions for that reason or death, deathbed baptisms for that reason. So his reason for cautioning children from being baptized would not be the same reason that a Baptist today would caution an infant or a child from being baptized. Right. No. Um, and indeed, he, the, yeah, the fact that he even cautions against it, one, he doesn't prohibit it outrightly. So he's, he's giving a word of caution. Um, so he's might be saying it's an issue of wisdom, but two, that caution suggests that it was a practice already happening, um, that Christians were doing this. And so here he is cautioning against timing and things like that. But one, I think we can very plausibly read off of this that it was a practice that was widespread enough that he felt the need to address it. And two, he never like prohibits it outrightly like he does with um, other things. He he says explicitly like the platonic view of the soul being 
eternally existent, like that's wrong. And we see Tertullian making really strong claims elsewhere, but he doesn't prohibit infant baptism. He just discourages it or gives a word of caution about when to do it because of that possibly novation um, understanding of baptism. That's my take. Yeah. Okay. So he wouldn't have had such an issue if it wasn't already a widespread practice that people were baptizing. What is children like meeting infants too? Um, I wish I had the, I forget exactly what he says, but he says something around the uh, infants, children. Oh yeah. Of the persons to whom in the time when baptisms to be administered, I think. Uh, there you go. Um, oh, yeah, he says, and so according to the circumstances and disposition and even age of each individual, the delay of baptism is preferable principally, however, or principally, however, in the case of little children. Um, yeah. And then later he says, like, don't rush into it. Or why, why would you rush into it? Why would you risk something? So, he, so is he against infant baptism altogether? Because it seems like that would, he wouldn't want any infant to get baptized or any child to get baptized. Well, he does. He uses the language of it's preferable to not, but he sure. never, he never gives an explicit prohibition. Okay. So that's at least my reading of it. Um, I know this passage tends to come up a lot in the infant baptism debates, and it gets cited from those on the credo-baptist side that, hey, look, Tertullian is prohibiting infant baptism, but it doesn't look like it's a prohibition. Um, And more so, it looks like the practice was common enough in the time Mm -hmm. that he had to address it. And so people who say, no, infant baptism was a much later development after the fourth, fifth century, like that's just, it's not true. and so, yeah, it, it's not it's not an apologetic or a or, or total knockdown argument for infant baptism, but it's at least not an argument against it. He also talks about a um, the times when you should be baptized, and he talks about doing it. Uh, he says the Passover affords a more than usually solemn day for baptism, hmm. when with all the Lord's passion in which we are baptized was completed. Um. So it seems like he, he takes Passover that week as a good time for people to get baptized mm-hmm. um, because of its sort of serious nature. And again, it ties into him really taking the baptismal vows seriously. Like, okay, do you understand what has happened to you and the allegiance that you're committing to now? And, and I think, you know, there's something to be said about learning from that. We wouldn't go as far as to say that baptism saves you, but that, you know, you, you really should consider what does this mean? Hmm. Uh, even if you were baptized as an infant to look back and go, what does this call me to? Hmm. Right. Uh, that, that this is a symbol to strengthen our faith and to say that there's something fundamentally different about us. It's a public symbol. It's a, it's a communal symbol. It's, you know, it's something that, uh, signifies something that God himself commanded that we do. And uh, what does it mean that you're washed clean, that you, you've, you've gone down to the waters and risen back up? Um, and, you know, I mean, what, 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 let, me, let me ask you this. When you read about some of this strong baptismal language, what's your reaction? Things like baptismal regeneration and, and things like that. How do we make sense of that? Um, I think, I think that what the early church was doing here was just trying to 
in in the book of acts you always get the repent and be baptized message in evangelism right. that baptism was always tied with repentance and what must we do to be saved how do we become part of your group how do we join you guys repent and be baptized repent and be baptized repent and be baptized so those things go hand in hand so i don't think the early church separated out what you did in baptism from your conversion experience that those two things were very much a synonymous event and so the initiation rite is it, it's just inextricably paired with the conversion event and so they may not be thinking in terms of those rigid distinctions like we are today or post reformation but um yeah in the same way that if you would have asked peter like wait which is it that saved is it the repentance or the baptism like what makes me a christian like they're just like it, it's both like that it's it's right. one and the same thing like that's how you that's how you become a christian you repent and be baptized um, and you're like, why, why do you need this like ritual attached to what the inner thing is going on? And to, I guess, to the early church, that question would have just been misguided, like wrongheaded. What would yeah. you need? Like, why would you, it's just, that's what you do. Yeah. You have to think about it. Like, um, I, I don't know why I'm, this might be a terrible analogy, but I, I think about like somebody who knows what water is, but doesn't know what, that it's H2O, you know, that it's, yeah. yeah. Right. And, and so you're like, well, which part's the hydrogen, which part's the oxygen? It's like, what are you talking about? It's water. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's not until you're more sophisticated and you realize, oh, water's made up of these components. So you could say like, well, I'm saved. Why? Because I was baptized. Right. Now, it, it's sort of like they don't have the concept of molecules or whatever the heck H2O mm -hmm. is. Right. And uh, but now we do. And so when you start to have debates about, OK, well, how does grace work on, on the will and all that stuff? Those aren't questions that the early church is asking necessarily. You know, they're hammering out other things. So, so we can't expect the early church to speak in the ways that, let's say, the reformers did or the medieval church did or the 20 and 21st century church mm -hmm. speaks. Uh, so there's a, a, a danger of simply reducing them to say, oh, well, they're heretical or, you know, I wonder if you even like pressed Tertullian, he'd be like, well, no, of course you're saved by grace and all these things. Right. But, but there wasn't that, it just wasn't the framework that they were having these discussions in. So we can't expect them to give answers to questions they weren't asking yet, or that well, weren't the most pressing questions. I like, time. I like the water analogy, but even one that's maybe a little bit more, and I think we've used this one before. Like if, uh, if you, Brian, when you're married soon, you will be wearing a ring. And so, right. uh, you know, people ask you like, oh yeah, I don't know. Girl starts flirting with you and you just point to your ring. Like that's, uh, that's how you indicate that you're married. It's right? a very common occurrence. Yeah. All the time. So you just yeah, point to your time. ring. It reminds me of the, uh, the Seinfeld episode where George does a social experiment. He like, he hears that guys who are married get hit on all the time and so he borrows a <laughs> wedding ring to pretend that he's married and all these girls uh refuse the great to... philosopher george costanza <laughs> but yeah your your analogy was better i think it, it, it was as much it as was it pains by to a long say. shot yes yeah. i know i know <laughs> but uh again though it, uh, like i said though it is challenging so do we have if 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 tertullian maybe suffered from too high a view of baptism if you want to call it that um, we might suffer from too low a view of baptism. Would you agree or disagree? Or you mean as evangelicals? As evangelicals, yeah. I think so. I think we don't 
we don't have a category for understanding the importance of ritual. I think evangelical mindset is very much on it's it's what happens internally. It doesn't matter what I do on the outside with my body. Doesn't matter what. Um, yeah, ritual seems to be denigrated or not even secondary, but just it's just not important. And um, yeah, I think I think what the the lesson from the early churches is that these rituals are important, and they're doing something um, deeper than what we can see. And they are, um, like you said, pockets of grace. This is where we find God in unique ways. Um, so I don't think everything is just symbolic in this way that evangelicals tend to think it is. We tend to see everything as a symbol. And I think the lesson from the early church is, well, let's not knock down that fence just yet. Like maybe it's not just a symbol. Maybe there's something deeper going on here. Yeah, and I, I think you don't have to go as far as to say that baptism saves you to still say that baptism does something. It, sure. It, that there is a, even if it's, you know, like a like, yeah, a means of grace, a means of God ministering to you, a means of God strengthening your faith, or something like that. Or I mean, it could very well be that the Holy Spirit saves you at the moment of baptism. Sure. You know, there's nothing stopping that from happening. But I also think, and I think the, it was the Puritans who said this that. The, the the practice of perfecting your baptism or, or you know, mm. uh, I can't remember the exact, but the, it's the idea of reflecting back on your baptism or when you see other people get baptized, letting that symbol once again refresh your mind to the truth of the gospel, give you greater security of who you are. I mean, Luther talked about how his baptism was a great support against like satan against his own flesh it was a great mm. thing to remember like oh it's my baptism my baptism oh, yeah. my baptism Absolutely. that's what shows you know that that i belong to god you know and <laughs> i mean luther baptized infants and he's mr justification by faith alone <laughs> right yeah. right i mean he's he's the great reformer who said there's nothing you do right it's just faith alone and and he still saw one baptism as as incredibly significant and necessary in the christian life and yeah. uh you know he, he did uh, he did seem to be uh baptizing infants there you go good but, stuff uh, a lot of good stuff here again this is on baptism by tertullian you can go check it out it's for free online all of these things if you just google them or whatever you can you can find pdfs uh, of these documents i encourage you to read them flip through them and get acquainted with them and uh, we're actually going to be starting a new series. We're going to take a little bit of a break from the church fathers, and we're going to dive into the book Miracles by C.S. Lewis. That's going to be coming soon. So make sure you subscribe to this podcast, share it with your friends, follow us on Instagram at That'll Preach Podcast, and uh, let us know what you think. Let us know uh, what some topics that you'd like to hear us talk about, riff about, joke about, and uh, we would love to get to those as well. Thank you guys for listening. See you next week.